Welcome to River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we strive to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, Lead Pastor Daryl Anderson continues a series titled Elevate with Part 7, Elevate Humility. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 teaches us pride and humility are opposites. One invites opposition, the other engages grace. James encourages us to elevate humility and tells us why and how. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. We're going to be in James chapter 4 this morning. We're still in our Elevate series, and um, this morning we're going to talk about Elevate Humility. Now remember, we've defined uh, elevate two ways. One means to lift up, but it also means to step it up. So last week, when we talked about elevate church, we said that really both definitions are in play uh, because when it comes to the church, we need to lift it up and be sure that we're putting church in its rightful place. But to really be the church, we may need to step it up in some areas. I would say this morning, as we talk about elevate humility, both of these definitions are in play as well. Because I think that we need to elevate the concept and the practice of humility. But at the same time, for us to really walk in humility, we may need to step it up in some areas as well. So let's see what James has to say about it. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's talking about this me, self-centered kind of approach. Verse four, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? Now he's talking about loving the world, loving the things of the world. Verse six, but he gives us more grace and that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now he's shifting and he's talking about this concept of humility. Verse eight, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James used the word humble twice in this passage, and the word literally means to lower. But it also comes as a a recognition of need. In other words, when we talk about humility in a spiritual context, what we're really saying is, I humble myself before God because I recognize that he is higher than me and he is greater than me and I recognize that I have this tremendous need for him in my life, which obviously is the opposite of pride. But James, here he starts off, he gives us really two reasons why we should elevate Humility. And the first one's in verse six. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So reason number one that we should even want humility is because that's how you experience grace. It's only the ones that have humbled themselves will experience the grace of God. The proud are gonna uh, experience the opposition of God. Proud here means arrogant and haughty. It's an overestimation of one's own merit and worth. 
so much so that it causes us to despise others or devalue others. It all becomes about me. And pride says, I'll just step on whoever I need to step on to keep climbing that ladder. If you're on, high, if you're on the ladder higher than me, I'm just going to step on your head when I come climbing up. It's all about me. That's what pride's all about. But humility says, I recognize that God's higher than me. And I begin to experience his grace. So humility becomes like a conduit, if you will, where the grace of God can flow in and through me. So if I want to experience God's grace, I'm gonna have to humble myself. We see this initially in salvation. That's really how somebody becomes saved is they recognize who God is and his greatness and they recognize their need because they understand their sinfulness. And so they have to humble themselves and lower themselves in a sense to say, God, I recognize what you've done for me and you're the great God who's come to save me. And so I'm going to invite you into my life. I recognize I'm a sinner. So there's this humbling process that takes place even at the very beginning upon salvation. But our pride is just the opposite. Because our pride says, I'm good, I'm self-sufficient, I don't need God. That's really what this passage was saying is this self-sufficient person says, hey, I'm so good, I don't need God. I don't even need, need to, to consult God because I have it all together. But even when I do consult God, it's for the wrong reasons. It's because I'm trying to do something for myself. So pride opposes God and it keeps us from experiencing the grace of God in our life. But humility allows us to experience that grace. But in verse 10, he gives us a second reason. And he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That word lift up, that phrase is actually the title of our series. It means to elevate. The biblical word is exalt, but it means to elevate. So it's funny when we elevate humility, God elevates us. Now, hang on because not the way you may be thinking initially because it's still not about us. But Luke 14, 11 says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, if we will elevate God, he is going to, excuse me, if we elevate ourselves, then he has a way of humbling us. But if we will elevate him, then he also has this process of elevating us. The passage tells us that we really have a choice, okay? In life, I can elevate myself or I can humble myself. Pride is all about elevating myself, but humility is all about elevating God. Because when I lower myself, spiritually speaking, what happens is I begin to elevate God. So when the passage says, if I will humble myself, he will exalt me. Really what he's going to do is he's not going to exalt you. He's not going to exalt your flesh. He's going to exalt himself through you. It's really about glorifying himself. All right, let me give you a word picture. Why do you think, when I usually do some visuals, why do you think I put it on a stand? Well, it's so you can see it. I have to lift it up so you can see what I'm doing. If I were to put this stuff, if this is my prop, and I were to put it down here on the floor, all of a sudden it becomes hard to see. Some of you can barely see it. Some of you may not can see it at all because it's slower. Here's the word picture, what humble ourselves means. It means I'm going to put myself lower so that you can't really see me. And at the same time, I'm going to elevate Christ because once I can get myself out of the way and lower, now Jesus is elevated. And so humility really is all about my desire for people to see Jesus in me. 
Now, higher and lower is not computing. Let's do front and back. Let's say I want you to see this ring, but now I'm going to hide it because I'm going to put something in front of it. Now you can't see the ring. The only way you're going to see the ring is if I put it in front. So if I'm putting myself, if this is my flesh and myself, if I want everybody to see me, nobody's seeing Christ in me because I want everybody to see me. But when I humble myself, what that means is I'm going to lower, I'm going to get behind so that everybody can see Christ. So spiritual humility is all about lowering myself so that Christ can be raised in my life. And so when you see me, you don't really see me, you see Christ in me. So Christ is not exalting me. He's not exalting the flesh of me. He's exalting himself through me. So what we really see is that humility comes from a desire to make Jesus visible. The context of what we're talking about here is, is a heart's desire. It all, it all stems from what my heart desires. Pride says my heart desires to exalt myself. But humility says my heart's desire is to elevate God. So since our desire should be to elevate God, we need to elevate humility because that's what elevates God. So that's, that's the beginning point where he says why we should even want to elevate God. It's to experience his grace and it's to glorify himself through us. But then he takes a turn and he starts to kind of explain humility. What does it look like? What's involved in humility? How can I really humble myself? What, how do I do that? What's involved in that? What are some actions I need to take to really be a person who is humbling themselves before the Lord. That's where he goes from here. So let me give you four aspects, if I can, about what humbling ourselves looks like, what it means to elevate humility. Here's number one. To elevate humility means to come under. It means to come under. Look in verse seven. He says, submit yourselves to the Lord. Submit yourselves then to God. That word submit literally means to come under. It means to come under or to become subject to the authority of somebody else. And it says submit yourself, so it's talking about a decision. It has to be a conscious act and a choice and a decision. It says, I will come under your authority. And it's in the imperative, which means there's a sense of urgency here. So really what James is saying is, I'm, I'm begging you, I'm urging you that right now make a decision to come under the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. Verses one through four, you see these words like fight and quarrel and battle. It's talking about all this stuff that you want. You won't even ask God for anything because you think you have it under control. When you do ask, you ask for yourself. It's all about this stuff, me, me, me. It's this me-centric, self-centered aspect. What he's, what he's defining here and giving a word picture is about a battle. It's about a decision that I'm going to battle against God. I'm going to struggle against God. I'm not going to come under the authority of God because I think I know better. It's this opposition, if you will, this defiance that he's trying to define. He's saying, don't be like that. Instead, humble yourself, recognize your needs so that you will come under his authority. Now, if you don't like the word submit, change the word to surrender. Because it has the same connotation. Surrender means to cease resistance to an opponent. 
There's several applications to this concept of surrender. One would be like, just say in a, in a military sense, in a battle, when you would surrender to an enemy, the reason you surrender is you know you can't defeat that enemy. So you know if I go to battle with this enemy, I'm going to lose my life, so I'm going to surrender so that I can save my life. Another application is if, if I've taken or borrowed something from somebody and I still have that thing, and the person comes to me and says, hey, would you give me back X? then I would surrender that thing to them because it belongs to them in the first place. Another idea is I would surrender something because I know that person is going to take better care. He's going to do with that thing better than I'm going to do with it. We see this sometimes in the area of parenting. If a parent has a child and knows they cannot take care of that child at all, they, they will at times surrender their parental rights to someone else because they know that other person is going to take much better care of this child. The same application is in the spiritual realm as well. When we talk about submitting and coming under and surrendering, all of these really apply. Because it means, number one, if I choose to fight against God and oppose him, that's a battle I cannot win. <laughs> so to save my life, I must surrender it to him. And also, as a follower of Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, you've been bought with the price and you belong to him. And so when he comes to you and says, hey, I want you back then we surrender our life to him because it belongs to him in the first place. Even if you've not given your life to Christ yet this morning, you're still a creation of God. So when he comes to say, hey, come under my authority, he's wanting to bring you back into relationship with himself. But it also means that when I surrender my life to him, what I'm saying is I know, God, that you're gonna do much better with my life than I'm gonna do it with myself. See, if I keep my life and I try to keep control and I try to be in charge, I'm not good enough. I'm not going to do the right thing. I'm not going to make the best choices. I'm going to mess up my life. But when I say, I'm going to come under your authority and I'm going to give you my life, I surrender myself to you. I'm doing that because I know that you're going to do a much better job with my life than I am. Because when we talk about Christ, it's all about life. It's all about peace. It's all about joy. It's all about hope. It's all about this stuff that God's going to do in, in blessing and using us. What he'll do with us is far greater than what we'll do with our own life. So first, what he's asking us is to come under. Because the longer I fight against God and the longer I fight with God in my pride, the longer I miss out on that Zoe life that God has for us. But when I come under his authority and surrender to him, now I've positioned myself to experience what God has for me. So that's, that's number one. I have to be willing to come under. Here's number two. To elevate humility means to come against. If you look in verse seven, the rest of it, it says, resist the devil. So it gives us two elements here, and it's in, it's in the proper order. You submit to God, you come under his authority, and then at the same time you come against or resist that which wants to continue to come against you and keep you from experiencing the life that God has for you. See, as soon as we make a decision to come under God's authority, we begin to live under that, that, that blessing that God has for us, and now Christ is glorifying himself through us. The enemy doesn't like that. The enemy comes against us, so at the same time we're coming under God's authority, we have to come against 
what Satan's going to try to do in our life because he's going to try to come against us and well up that pride again, well up that self-sufficiency again, well up those things that can say, hey, I can do this. I don't really need God. And so we have to have an attitude that says I'm going to resist and come against the enemy. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes we get these reversed. <laughs> the key is to, is to surrender and submit to the proper entity. It's really easy in our life at times to begin to, to come against God and what he's trying to do in our life and at the same time come under the authority of the devil and submit to what he wants rather than the other way. Pride says, I'm not, I'm not surrendering. I'm going to come against God. In reality, what you end up doing is coming under the authority of the evil one. But humility says, I will come under God's authority. And because of that, I'm going to come against what Satan wants to do. It all comes back again to desire. I said earlier, it's all about the desire of my heart. What is the desire of my heart? Is the desire of my heart to glorify Christ or is it to glorify myself? Is the desire of my heart to walk in what God has for me or is it the desire to walk in what the world has for me? Is my desire the things of God or is my desire the things of this world? That desire begins to communicate into our spirit what I'm going to submit to and what I'm going to resist. But spiritual humility says I'm going to come under God's authority because I want him glorified through me. So I'm going to come against the enemy. Here's the third one. They all tie together. They're all interconnected and simultaneous. But third, if we're going to elevate humility, we've got to come near. Look in verse 8. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, this sounds a little funny because we said in the, one of our first uh, sessions that God is imminent. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. We've already determined that we cannot escape God's presence. Anywhere that I would go, God is going to be there. So how do I come near to God when I never can really get away from God? Well, here it's talking about a dynamic of, of intimacy, of, of relationship, of companionship. The word literally means to, to approach or to gather around. For example, let's say I've got something really important to say. It's, it's a secret. I only want people that are really close to me to know, to know it. So what I'm going to say is I would say, hey, because there's people all around. I would say, hey, guys, gather around. Come here. Come here. I'll get everybody gathered around. i say, let me tell you something. That's the idea. Come here because I've got something really special to tell just you. You see, this is what Jesus did a lot. As he would talk to the crowds, what would he do? He then would bring his disciples in closer and he would explain some things just to the disciples. This is this dynamic of, of intimacy. This is what it's saying. Come near to God. What it's saying is, hey, I've got something really special to share. I've, there's a relationship here that I want to have with you. So draw in and come close and to approach. That's what come near is all about. Again, it talks about a desire. We see this played out a little bit in Psalm 1. It's an interesting passage. But the first part, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his law is on the, the, 
his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. Here's, here's the word picture he's trying to say. There are some who have a desire to want to, to live with the, in the Old Testament terms, to live with the wicked, the ungodly, to, to walk with those who are, let's say, prideful, that are self-seeking, that are not seeking God. So here's a progression that you'll see. First, they just walk by this group of ungodly, and it's like, hmm, I kind of notice. There's kind of a, an interest, kind of, I wonder what's going on over there. But then there's a progression. Now, now what you do is you come and you stand in the way of the sinners. In other words, I'm really getting interested in this. And what's going on with all of this stuff is starting to have an appeal. And I'm really liking now what I'm seeing in all of this stuff going on. But then the third progression is the one that sits in the seat of the scoffers. Now he has become intimate. He has gathered around the wicked, the ungodly, the worldly, and he has bought in because his desire are the things of the world. What Psalm is saying is don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, your delight should be on the law of the Lord, and you should be meditating on that day and night. In other words, your heart and your desire should be to come near to the Lord and desire his word and desire that intimacy and that relationship. But humility is the dynamic that creates that. Because if I don't think I have need for him, I'm not going to draw near to him for a relationship because I don't think I need it. So that's where humility plays in. So why is he calling us to come near? Well, verse five gives us some insight into that. It's an interesting part of the verse. So that the spirit God caused to live in us envies intensely. The spirit that he caused to live in us envies intensely. Some of your translations may say is jealous for. It's kind of a difficult passage. Scholars through the years have had a kind of a hard time figuring out what that means. Because we always have the context, really, of envy or jealousy as a negative emotion. But here in Scripture, it's really just the opposite. It's, it's a positive dynamic. Really what it's saying here, why should I come near? Why should I desire that intimacy? Why should I give up the things of the world so that I can meditate on God? Why? why? It's right here because the Spirit envies. In other words, God loves you. And he loves you so much, he has a desire to be intimate with you. And he doesn't want to share you with anything or anybody else. He doesn't want you out here loving someone else or something else because he is envious of you. He is jealous. He wants you all for himself. And so he wants you to come near to him and give up all the rest of the things of this world and focus in and press in on this intimate relationship because he loves you so much. It's an invitation for a relationship. It's not a legalistic duty. It's not, a, it's not this, this uh, act of bondage. It's this, it's this response of love that God loves me so much. He's made a way through the death of his son and through the spirit in us to give us access to the father and intimacy with the father. And now he desires that we would come near in our humility and commune with him. Here's the fourth reason, fourth element. To elevate humility, fourthly, you need to come clean. Look at the rest of verse eight. Wash your hands and purify your heart. I did some research this week, got on a couple of websites 
the CDC and Mayo Clinic and a, a couple of others like that, highly reputable um, organizations, and asked the question, how often should you wash your hands in a day? How often should you wash your hands? Well, none of them would give me a number. Instead, they just gave me times when you should wash your hands. And it generally boiled down to before you do certain things or after you do certain things. So when I added all those things up that a typical normal person might do in a day, it came to where the average person probably should wash their hands about 15 times a day by average, 15 times a day. Now, probably unless you're in the medical healthcare profession or you're in education, you probably don't wash your hands 15 times a day. I bet the average person doesn't wash their hands 15 times a day. We're all running around with a bunch of germs on our hands. Well, I ask a second question, and that is how long should you wash your hands? Well, some of them gave me some time frames, but one I thought was the funniest, which was from a reputable organization, he said, you should sing through happy birthday twice. So I want you to think about that when you go wash your hands, you start singing happy birthday to me, happy birthday, and sing through it twice and keep washing your hands. But really the gist of this was you need to do a thorough job. You need to keep your hands clean, wash them often, wash them well, because you want them to be very clean. Well, this phrase, wash your hands, purify your heart, it literally means to make clean. So in the spiritual sense, he's saying, make your heart clean. Humility will cause us to be willing to come clean. The Mayo Clinic website said that hand washing offers great rewards in terms of preventing illness. Adopting this habit can play a major role in protecting your health. Well, that applies spiritually because spiritually speaking, washing your hands plays a major role in your spiritual health. And here we're talking about cleansing from sin. We're talking about dealing with our sin. Now, we're not talking about I'm going to sin and I'm lost if, if you know Christ. But we're talking about this, this intimacy that we allow sin to reign in us and we become so comfortable with us. It begins to, to just mess with us. It grieves the spirit. It quenches the spirit. To come clean means that I'm going to deal with sin in my life and I'm going to make it clean. I'm really going to deal with it. To help understand this, let me, I want to give you a couple of word pictures. The first one is this phrase I, I think everybody's heard uh, before. You've, you've heard the, the term sweep it under the rug? Heard that phrase? Well, we know that's a, that's a, that's a figurative speech that, that, you know, instead of dealing with something, I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. That way nobody can see it. I don't really have to deal with it. But it, it came from, a, a, from something very literal, which you would literally sweep things under the rug. So let's say I'm cleaning my living room, all right? And I don't really want to do a great job, so instead I'm just going to kind of sweep it under the rug. Okay, it's done. Now, the idea there is, number one, nobody can see it. But number two, I don't really have to deal with it. I don't have to really clean it and get rid of it. I can just hide it, and that way I can just kind of think, well, it's gone. That's what a lot of people do with their sin. They don't necessarily want to deal with it and get rid of it. Sometimes what they want to do is just sweep it under the rug so nobody can see it. 
And when they sweep it under the rug, I can kind of forget about it. I can hope that maybe God will kind of forget about it so I can really keep it in my life because if we're really honest, there are some sins we really enjoy, we really want to try to hang on to. And so I can just kind of act like I've cleaned it, but I haven't really cleaned it very well. Well, let me take this to a ridiculous point, okay? Let me just be stupid for a minute. Let's say, I know that doesn't come hard, but let's say, let's say that I'm gonna clean my living room, okay? But in my living room, there are times when, you know, I come home, I just want to relax, so I, I may just take my shoes off sometimes and I just kind of throw them in the living room and I may, they may be there for, you know, a day. But also, I have a favorite chair I sit in, but it doesn't really have a table, so a lot of times when I'm having iced tea or something, I just put my cups on the, on the floor next to my chair. So let's just say, you know, I just kind of left those on the floor and they're kind of hanging on the kitchen floor. Well, I also like to sit in the chair and just read a little bit. So let's just say I've got a couple of books here and, and I decide I've left them on the floor, but it comes to the point where, okay, Daryl, you got to clean, clean the living room. It's time to clean it up. So here's what I do. Instead of cleaning, I just decide, you know what? I'm just going to sweep it all under the rug. I'm just gonna get rid of all this stuff. I'm gonna put it all right here and we're just gonna sweep it under the rug and we're gonna get rid of it and here we go. Now, I know everybody can't see that, but it looks pretty stupid because it's not really hidden. It's starting to, to, to build up the rug. It's starting to come out of the rug and flow out of the rug and it's just kind of, making a mess. Well, that's, that's what happens when we try to sweep sin under the rug. We keep, we keep sweeping more and more and more and it just builds up and it builds up and it builds up and pretty soon it's just gonna come flooding out underneath the rug in disastrous proportions. You see this in 1 Samuel. This is what Eli did. Eli was a priest in the temple and he had two sons who were priests in the temple. And these two sons were evil. They were wicked. And in serving in the temple, they were abusing women and they were abusing the offering. When the offering would come, the part that, that belonged to the Lord, they were taking for themselves. And Eli knew what was going on. He did talk to them once, but he wouldn't stop them. And scripture says that God's gonna bring judgment because he would not restrain them. Eli would not deal with the sin of his sons. He just kept sweeping everything under the rug, hoping nobody would notice, nobody would see, maybe God would forget, maybe it wouldn't cause any issue, wouldn't cause any problem, just keep sweeping it under the rug. And finally, it came pouring out. And God's judgment, it, the, the sons were were killed, it, it affected the entire family lineage of Eli. Because he wouldn't come clean, he wanted to sweep it under the rug. To come clean means I'm not gonna sweep it under the rug. I'm really gonna deal with it. Let me give you another word picture. When Denise and I are cleaning the house, sometimes I clean the house, sometimes she cleans the house. A lot of times we kind of do it together. She does some, I do, I do some. But I think we all know that there's clean and then there's clean. Our definitions of clean aren't the same, okay? When I clean, I clean that stuff that you can see. So it looks clean. 
but she cleans the stuff that you can't see, that you don't normally look at so that it really is clean. So when I'm through cleaning, it looks clean, but it ain't clean. <laughs> but when Denise cleans, man, it is clean. What this is talking about is clean. To come clean means I'm not just gonna deal with the stuff that I can see or that others can see, but I'm really going to clean. Now, to my defense, when I get serious about cleaning, I could really clean well. I just don't get that serious about it very often. <laughs> but that's the spirit of this passage is that we get serious about coming clean. That we become serious about dealing with sin in our life. That we do not become comfortable. That we can just let that stuff stay in us. And it doesn't matter if it's stuff that nobody ever sees, nobody even ever knows would ever know about. But we wanna get rid of that stuff too. We see this saying this, David says this in Psalm 19, 12, and 13. He says, forgive my hidden faults. Forgive that stuff that people don't even see. Maybe it's stuff that I've hidden for so long, I don't even, even remember it still. <laughs> forgive my hidden faults and keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. When I'm willing to come clean and say, God, I'm not just sweeping this stuff under the rug so people can't see it and I can forget about it and hope you just say, okay, keep it. <laughs> I wanna get rid of it. I want it out of my life. I wanna be clean because I want you to be glorified in me and I want to experience all that you have for me. So we're talking about having an awareness of sin, acknowledging our sin, and then doing an about face with our sin. The Bible word is repentance, or I wanna go the other way and no longer do it. When I talk to people about dealing with sin and when I say, how should I deal with sin? Here's how we should deal with sin. Admit it, quit it, and forget it. Admit it, and then quit it, and then forget it. And you claim God's forgiveness. You claim God's cleansing. And you walk in that intimacy once again. So as I wrap it up, what James is telling us is that we need to have an attitude of humility. We need to elevate and lift up the concept of humility. It's not something we should be ashamed of. It's something we should strive for because it allows us to experience the grace of God and it gives us the opportunity to let Jesus rise, rise higher in us and be glorified through us. But my encouragement this morning is that you would be willing to come under God's authority, that you would come against God's enemy, that you would come near into God's presence and you would come clean through God's forgiveness. And may verse 10 be our practice that we would humble ourselves before the Lord so that he would lift us up. Would you bow with me? 
Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.